Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders network. Featuring Starship Sofa and Far-Fetched Fables, everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. Well, I'm about to concede a victory to a faction of our listening audience, It's been an ongoing battle for years now. Print books or digital books. I had both feet solidly in the Dead Tree book camp for years after e-readers came on the scene, but then, tempted by those fun little devices, my fiancé at the time purchased a Barnes & Noble Nook Simple Touch for birthday about six years ago, and I found myself turncoat immediately. I've read millions of words on that thing over those years. This month, I bought a new backpack, put the nook in one of the pockets, loaded the backpack down, and then when I went to read, found the screen held fractional pieces of the Bronte sisters' faces and some of a page of Melissa Scott's 1994 cyberpunk book from Tor Publishing, Trouble and Her Friends, all mixed together with bits of it flickering. That's something that doesn't happen with paper books. I had a bit of heartbreak over it because it was a gift from my wife, but it's hard to get overly sentimental about electronics, since I know better than most that there really isn't such a thing as an heirloom computer. But the good thing is that those vintage of nooks will set you back about 30 bucks on eBay, so I'm back in action. 
And just before I turn over the reins to a narrator with a great old story for us, I'll remind you again to drop a review on iTunes for our podcast. First up, we'll have a real classic for you. Ambrose Gwinnett Bierce was an American Civil War soldier, wit, and writer. Today, Bierce is best known for his howlingly funny book, The Devil's Dictionary, which was named as one of the 100 greatest masterpieces of American literature by the American Revolution Bicentennial Administration for his story, An Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge, which is frequently anthologized and has been adapted into stage, radio, film, and television dramas more than a dozen times, and which appeared on Tales of Terrify's episode 200 in October 2015, and for his book, Tales of Soldiers and Civilians, also published in The Midst of Life, which was named by the Grolier Club as one of the 100 most influential American books printed before 1900. During his lifetime, Bierce was better known as a journalist than as a fiction writer. His most popular stories were written in rapid succession between 1888 and 1891 in what was characterized as a tremendous burst of consummate art. Bierce's works often highlights the inscrutability of the universe and the absurdity of death. In December of 1913, at the age of 71, after touring his old Civil War battlefields, Bierce traveled to Chihuahua, Mexico, to gain first-hand experience of the Mexican Revolution. He was rumored to be traveling with rebel troops and was never seen again. Despite an abundance of theories, his end remains shrouded in mystery. And now, the classic from Ambrose Bierce, The Damned Thing. One. By the light of a tallow candle, which had been placed on one end of a rough table... A man was reading something written in a book. It was an old account book, greatly worn. And the writing was not apparently very legible, for the man sometimes held the page close to the flame of the candle to get a stronger light upon it. The shadow of the book would then throw into obscurity a half of the room, darkening a number of faces and figures, for besides the reader, eight other men were present. Seven of them sat against the rough log walls, silent and motionless, and the room being small, not very far from the table. By extending an arm, any one of them could have touched the eighth man who lay on the table, face upward, partly covered by a sheet, his arms at his sides. He was dead. The man with the book was not reading aloud, and no one spoke. All seemed to be waiting for something to occur. The dead man only was without expectation. From the blank darkness outside came in through the aperture that served for a window all the ever-unfamiliar noises of night in the wilderness, the long, nameless note of a distant coyote, the stilly pulsing thrill of tireless insects in the trees, strange cries of night birds, so different from those of the birds of day, 
the drone of great blundering beetles and all that mysterious chorus of small sounds that seemed always to have been but half heard when they have suddenly ceased, as if conscious of an indiscretion. But nothing of all this was noted in that company. Its members were not overmuch addicted to idle interest in matters of no practical importance. That was obvious in every line of their rugged faces, obvious even in the dim light of the single candle. They were evidently men of the vicinity, farmers and woodmen. The person reading was a trifle different. One would have said of him that he was of the world, worldly, albeit there was that in his attire which attested a certain fellowship with the organisms of his environment. His coat would hardly have passed muster in San Francisco. His footgear was not of urban origin, and the hat that lay by him on the floor, he was the only one uncovered, was such that if one had considered it as an article of mere personal adornment, he would have missed its meaning. In countenance, the man was rather prepossessing, with just a hint of sternness, though that he may have assumed or cultivated as appropriate to one in authority, for he was a coroner. It was by virtue of his office that he had possession of the book in which he was reading, it had been found among the dead man's effects in his cabin, where the inquest was now taking place. When the coroner had finished reading, he put the book into his breast pocket. At that moment, the door was pushed open and a young man entered. He clearly was not of mountain birth and breeding. He was clad as those who dwell in cities. His clothing was dusty, however, as from travel. He had, in fact, been riding hard to attend the inquest. The coroner nodded. No one else greeted him. "'We have waited for you,' said the coroner. "'It is necessary to have done with this business tonight.' The young man smiled. "'I am sorry to have kept you,' he said. I went away, not to evade your summons, but to post to my newspaper an account of what I suppose I am called back to relate. The coroner smiled. The account that you posted to your newspaper, he said, differs probably from that which you will give here under oath. That, replied the other, rather hotly and with a visible flush, is as you choose. I used manifold paper and have a copy of what I sent. It was not written as news, for it is incredible, but as fiction. It may go as part of my testimony under oath. But you say it is incredible. That is nothing to you, sir, if I also swear that it's true. The coroner was apparently not greatly affected by the young man's manifest resentment. He was silent for some moments, his eyes on the floor. The men about the sides of the cabin talked in whispers, but seldom withdrew their gaze from the face of the corpse. Presently the coroner lifted his eyes and said, We will resume the inquest. The men removed their hats. The witness was sworn.
What is your name? the coroner asked. William Harker. Age? 27. You knew the deceased, Hugh Morgan? Yes. You were with him when he died? Near him. How did that happen, your presence, I mean? I was visiting him at his place to shoot and fish. A part of my purpose, however, was to study him and his odd, solitary way of life. He seemed a good model for a character in fiction. I sometimes write stories. I sometimes read them. Thank you. Stories in general, not yours. Some of the jurors laughed. Against the somber background, humor shows highlights. Soldiers in the intervals of battle laugh easily, and a jest in the death chamber conquers by surprise. Relate the circumstances of this man's death, said the coroner. You may use any notes or memoranda that you please. The witness understood. Pulling a manuscript from his breast pocket, he held it near the candle and, turning the leaves until he found the passage that he wanted, began to read. 2. The sun had hardly risen when we left the house. We were looking for quail each with a shotgun, but we only had one dog. Morgan said that our best ground was beyond a certain ridge that he pointed out, and we crossed it by trail through the chaparral. On the other side was comparatively level ground, thickly covered with wild oats. As we emerged from the chaparral, Morgan was but a few yards in advance. Suddenly we heard, at a little distance to our right, and partly in front, a noise as of some animal thrashing about in the bushes, which we could see were violently agitated. "'We've startled the deer,' I said. "'I wish we'd brought a rifle.' Morgan, who had stopped and was intently watching the agitated chaparral, said nothing, but had cocked both barrels of his gun and was holding it in readiness to aim." I thought him a trifle excited, which surprised me, for he had a reputation for exceptional coolness, even in moments of sudden and imminent peril. "'Oh, come,' I said. "'You're not going to fill up a deer with quail shot, are you?' Still he did not reply, but catching a sight of his face as he turned as slightly toward me, I was struck by the pallor of it. Then I understood that we'd serious business on hand— and my first conjecture was that we jumped to Grizzly. I advanced to Morgan's side, cocking my piece as I moved. The bushes were now quiet, and the sounds had ceased, but Morgan was as attentive to the place as before. "'What is it? What the devil is it?' I asked. "'That damned thing,' he replied, without turning his head." His voice was husky and unnatural. He trembled visibly. I was about to speak further when I observed the wild oats near the place of the disturbance moving in the most inexplicable way. I can hardly describe it. 
It seemed as if stirred by a streak of wind which not only bent it, but pressed it down, crushed it so that it did not rise, and this movement was slowly prolonging itself directly toward us. Nothing that I had ever seen had affected me so strangely as this unfamiliar and unaccountable phenomenon, yet I am unable to recall any sense of fear. I remember and tell it here because, singularly enough, I recollected it then that once, in looking carelessly out of an open window, I momentarily mistook a small tree close at hand for one of a group of larger trees at a little distance away. It looked the same size as the others, but being more distinctly and sharply defined in mass and details, seemed out of harmony with them. It was a mere falsification of the law of aerial perspective, but it startled almost terrified me. We so rely upon the orderly operation of familiar natural laws that any seeming suspension of them is noted as a menace to our safety, a warning of unthinkable calamity. So now the apparently causeless movement of the herbage and the slow and deviating approach of the line of disturbance were distinctly disquieting. My companion appeared actually frightened, and I could hardly credit my senses when I saw him suddenly throw his gun to his shoulders and fire both barrels at the agitated grass. Before the smoke of the discharge had cleared away, I heard a loud, savage cry, a scream like that of a wild animal, and flinging his gun upon the ground, Morgan sprang away and ran swiftly from the spot. At the same instant, I was thrown violently to the ground by the impact of something unseen in the smoke, some soft, heavy substance that seemed thrown against me with great force. Before I could get upon my feet and recover my gun, which seemed to have been struck from my hands, I heard Morgan crying out as if in mortal agony, and mingling with his cries were such hoarse, savage sounds as one hears from fighting dogs. Inexpressibly terrified, I struggled to my feet and looked in the direction of Morgan's retreat. And may heaven and mercy spare me from another sight like that. At a distance of less than thirty yards was my friend, down upon one knee, his head thrown back at a frightful angle, hatless, his long hair in disorder and his whole body in violent movement from side to side, backward and forward. His right arm was lifted and seemed to lack the hand. At least I could see none. The other arm was invisible. At times, as my memory now reports this extraordinary scene, I could discern but a part of his body. It was as if he'd been partly blotted out. I cannot otherwise express it. Then a shifting of his position would bring it all into view again. All this must have occurred within a few seconds, yet in that time Morgan assumed all the postures of a determined wrestler vanquished by superior weight and strength. I saw nothing but him, and him not always distinctly. 
During the entire incident, his shouts and curses were heard as if through an enveloping uproar of such sounds of rage and fury as I had never heard from the throat of man or brute. For a moment only I stood irresolute, then throwing down my gun I ran forward to my friend's assistance. I had a vague belief that he was suffering from a fit or some form of convulsion. Before I could reach his side, he was down and quiet. All sounds had ceased, but with a feeling of such terror as even these awful events had not inspired, I now saw the same mysterious movement of the wild oats prolonging itself from the trampled area about the prostate man toward the edge of a wood. It was only when it had reached the wood that I was able to withdraw my eyes and look at my companion. He was dead. 3. The coroner rose from his seat and stood beside the dead man. Lifting an edge of the sheet, he pulled it away, exposing the entire body, altogether naked, and showing in the candlelight a clay-like yellow. It had, however, brought maculations of bluish-black, obviously caused by extravasated blood from contusions. The chest and sides looked as if they'd been beaten with a bludgeon. They were dreadful lacerations. The skin was torn in strips and shreds. The coroner moved round to the end of the table and undid a silk handkerchief, which had been passed under the chin and knotted on the top of the head. When the handkerchief was drawn away, it exposed what had been the throat. Some of the jurors, who had risen to get a better view, repented their curiosity and turned away their faces. Witness Harker went to the open window and leaned out across the sill, faint and sick. Dropping the handkerchief upon the dead man's neck, the coroner stepped to an angle of the room and from a pile of clothing produced one garment after another, each of which he held up a moment for inspection. All were torn and stiff with blood. The jurors did not make a closer inspection. They seemed rather uninterested. They had, in truth, seen all this before, the only thing that was new to them being Harker's testimony. Gentlemen, the coroner said, we have no more evidence, I think. Your duty has been already explained to you. If there's nothing you wish to ask, you may go outside and consider your verdict. The foreman rose, a tall bearded man of sixty, coarsely clad. I should like to ask one question, Mr. Coroner, he said. What asylum did this your last witness escape from? "'Mr. Harker,' said the coroner, gravely and tranquilly. "'From what asylum did you last escape?' "'Harker flushed crimson again, but said nothing, "'and the seven jurors rose and solemnly filed out of the cabin. "'If you've done insulting me, sir,' said Harker, "'as soon as he and the officer were left alone with the dead man, "'I suppose I'm at liberty to go?' "'Yes,' Harker started to leave, but paused with his hand on the door-latch. 
The habit of his profession was strong in him, stronger than his sense of personal dignity. He turned about and said, "'The book you have there, I recognize it as Morgan's diary. You seemed greatly interested in it. You read it while I was testifying. May I see it? The public would like.' "'The book will cut no figure in this matter,' replied the official, slipping it into his coat pocket." All the entries in it were made before the writer's death. As Harker passed out of the house, the jury re-entered and stood about the table, on which the now-covered corpse showed under the sheet with sharp definition. The foreman seated himself near the candle, produced from his breast pocket a pencil and scrap of paper, and wrote rather laboriously the following verdict, which, with various degrees of effort, all signed. We, the jury, do find that the remains come to their death at the hands of a mountain lion, but some of us thinks, all the same, they had fits. 4. In the diary of the late Hugh Morgan are certain interesting entries, having possibly a scientific value as suggestions at the inquest upon his body, the book was not put in evidence. Possibly the coroner thought it not worthwhile to confuse the jury. The date of the first of the entries mentioned cannot be ascertained. The upper part of the leaf is torn away. The part of the entry remaining is as follows. Would run in a half circle, keeping his head turned always toward the center, and again he would stand still, barking furiously. At last he ran away into the brush as fast as he could go. I thought at first that he'd gone mad, but on returning to the house found no other alteration in his manner than what was obviously due to fear of punishment. Can a dog see with his nose? Do odors impress some olfactory center with images of the thing emitting them? September 2. Looking at the stars last night as they rose above the crest of the ridge east of the house, I observed them successively disappear from left to right. Each was eclipsed but an instant, and only a few at the same time, but along the entire length of the ridge, all that were within a degree or two of the crest were blotted out. It was as if something had passed along between me and them, but I could not see it, and the stars were not thick enough to define its outline. Ugh, I don't like this. Several weeks' entries are missing, three leaves being torn from the book. September 27th. It has been about here again. I find evidences of its presence every day. I watched again all of last night in the same cover, gun in hand, double-charged with buckshot. In the morning the fresh footprints were there, as before. Yet I would have sworn that I did not sleep. Indeed, I hardly sleep at all. It is terrible, insupportable. If these amazing experiences are real, I shall go mad. If they're fanciful... I'm mad already. October 3rd. I shall not go. It shall not drive me away. No, this is my house, my land. God hates a coward. October 5th. 
I can stand it no longer. I've invited Hargrew to pass a few weeks with me. He has a level head. I can judge from his manner if he thinks me mad. October 7th. I have the solution of the problem. It came to me last night, suddenly, as if by revelation. How simple, how terribly simple. There are sounds that we cannot hear. At either end of the scale are notes that stir no chord of that imperfect instrument, the human ear. They're too high or too grave. I have observed a flock of blackbirds occupying an entire treetop, the tops of several trees, and all in full song, and suddenly, in a moment, at absolutely the same instant, all spring into the air and fly away. How? They could not all see one another. Whole treetops intervened. At no point could a leader have been visible to all. There must have been a signal of warning or command, high and shrill above the din, but, by me, unheard. I have observed, too, the same simultaneous flight when all were silent, among not only blackbirds, but other birds. Quail, for example, widely separated by bushes, even on opposite sides of a hill. It's known to seamen that a school of whales basking or sporting on the surface of the ocean, miles apart with the convexity of the earth between them, will sometimes dive at the same instant, all gone out of sight in a moment. The signal has been sounded, too grave for the ear of the sailor at the masthead and his comrades on the deck, who nevertheless feel its vibrations in the ship as the stones of a cathedral are stirred by the bass of the organ. As with sounds, so with colors. At each end of the solar spectrum, the chemists can detect the presence of what are known as actinic rays. They represent colors, integral colors in the composition of light, which we are unable to discern. The human eye is an imperfect instrument. Its range is but a few octaves of the real chromatic scale. I'm not mad. There are colors that we cannot see. And God help me, the damned thing is of such a color. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. That was Ambrose Bierce's The Damned Thing, as read by Martin Rato. Martin Rato is an educator, writer, and musician. He has worked in an eclectic variety of fields, including 18 years as a technical writer and software developer, 16 years as a teacher of creative writing, computer science, and business communication, and shorter stints as a symphony musician and audiobook narrator. He has published short fiction and two collections of his poetry. Thank you, as always, Martin. Our second story of the night comes from an editor at her sister podcast, Starship Sofa. Jeremy Saul was born in 1995 in the outback of Australia and was raised by wild dingoes. His science fiction and fantasy work has appeared in Nature, Abyss and Apex, Lightspeed, Strange Horizons, Tor.com, The Drabblecast, and has been translated into multiple languages. He is a fiction editor for a little-known podcast you probably haven't heard of called Starship Sofa, where he's worked with authors such as George R. R. Martin, William Gibson, and Joe R. Lansdale. He's completed multiple novels and is on the hunt for literary representation. He lives with his family in Sydney, Australia, where he consumes too much craft beer. Find him at jeremysall.com or on Twitter at jeremysall. Links to both should be in the show notes. Listen with me to a Tales to Terrify original about just about the creepiest thing that we see every day, mannequins. Jeremy Sall's House of Dolls. Watching the wipers scrape away faint spatters of rain from the windscreen, Ethan Cage wished he hadn't hurt Martha. God knows he didn't mean it. It's not like he'd been planning to do it. But then they'd had the usual argument. Not enough money, too much work, not wanting a kid. Words were hurled back and forth, the four-lettered ones. He'd started to walk away, already late for work. She pulled him back, called him a coward, told him she was glad they never had a child. He didn't deserve to be a father. And he'd slapped her. The ugly bruise plastered on her cheek made him feel like the scum of the earth. And after the things he'd seen, that was saying a lot. He rubbed his nose, flicked the radio to the next station. Damn it, he needed a coffee. But there weren't many 24-7 shops down this area of Sydney. Only top-end eateries. And judging by the splay of houses around here, all the residents had a rod up their arse and an attitude to boot. At least the people in the slums were honest. His radio spluttered to life. Detective? Where are you? Ethan gripped the talkie. I'll be there soon. What's the street again? Lisbeth Street. Wait, I see it. 
He turned into the road, fat wheels crunching on slick gravel. The rain had stopped now, leaving a wet scent to linger in the air. He saw it at the end of the street, the house of white stone and heavy iron gates, surrounded by clipped shrubs. The dark spine of a paperback tree twisted upwards, spindly branches jutting out like an old woman's fingers. The jacaranda tree was in full bloom, littering the lawn with purple petals. Only the satellite dish mounted to the wall gave any indication he hadn't been whisked back to the late 19th century. They were waiting for him, parked just outside the premises. Sergeant Deborah Quinn was conversing with a man draped in a cotton nightgown, wringing his pudgy hands. What do you have? Ethan eyed Marshall and Baxter with envy, leaning against the patrol car and nursing thermoses of rich coffee. Quinn strode towards him, the streetlight highlighting her sharp Indonesian features. Guy says he saw Mr. Adams come home with some girl in tow, she said. Soon he hears a scream and crash, then someone making a break for it through the garden. She blinked heavily. Says it's not the first time it's happened either. Did he give us a call? Ethan loosened his collar, the roof of thick clouds pressing down on him, trying to squeeze his body dry. Says he did, but never heard back from us. Right. Ethan turned back to the house. Well, let's pay him a visit. The iron gate was open, letting them stroll up the path that curved around the garden. Ferns brushed softly against his legs, like Martha's smooth fingers. Ethan shivered. Just when had it all become so screwed up? Tonight had definitely been a new low. He was definitely going to fix this somehow. She deserved a better husband than this. Ethan had been expecting an old-fashioned ding-dong bell and stiff waiter to fling open the door. Instead, they got an electric buzzer with no one to greet them. Ethan stabbed the button again. Nothing. They stood awkwardly on the patio for a few minutes before he tried the silver doorknob on impulse. It twisted in his hands. He stepped back, letting it swing open. It was against all the rules, but to hell with it. The neighbour had heard screams. Someone could have been hurt. The halls were quiet as a mausoleum, cold moonlight pooling on the whitewashed tiles. Yellow light came from lamps, tinted glass depicting blooming roses and twisting thorns. Hello? Ethan jumped at Quinn's voice, sounding through the house. There was no reply. The neighbour said he saw someone escape through the back, Ethan muttered. One of them should still be here. His ears picked up a muffled scrape, like metal rubbing gently on metal. Quinn flashed her torch, the light bobbing around the room, trying to pick out the noise. It sounded again, louder this time. The light found a door at the far end of the hallway, branching off into the house. They advanced down the hall, footsteps echoing. Ethan sniffed. The house felt sterile, too clean, like some sort of health clinic. Everything was shiny and new, polished to perfection. They came to a large bedroom, a four-poster bed with red velvet sheets taking up a large portion of the space. Two flickering candles stood on a bed of solid wax, 
tiny balls of light surrounded by darkness. The syrupy wind was swinging windows back and forth, grating on the sill. Ethan poked his head out, finding himself leaning over the back garden. He must have escaped through here, Ethan muttered. Tell them to do a few rounds of the block. Maybe he's still in the area. He inspected the room while Quinn called up Marshall and Baxter. It was the standard sort. A large mirror built into the wall at the far end. A tall wardrobe. A plasma TV mounted on the wall. A state-of-the-art air conditioner for the sweltering summer nights. And a bottle of champagne. The good stuff. What was that doing in here? You didn't drink champagne by yourself alone at night. That's what whiskey was for. It was still dripping, a ring of water forming around the base. It was then that he noticed something shiny on the floor, half buried in the fluffy carpet. He crouched on his haunches, inspecting the item. It was a thin shard of glass, the edges jagged. The neighbour said he heard something smash. The hell is that? Ethan looked up. Quinn was pointing to something in the corner, bathed in shadows. Ethan flicked on the bronze chandelier, chasing away the darkness. It was a mannequin, locked in a frozen stance. Modelled after a woman, she was well tanned and tall. Yellowy hair had been sewn into the scalp, eyes painted a vibrant brown that seemed to be boring into his soul, stripping away his flesh and exposing his bones. Quinn grunted, wrapping her knuckles against synthetic skin. Out of all the stuff people use, this one takes the cake. Ethan allowed himself a grin. The body was twisted in a slight angle, the hand extended outwards. It looked like something you'd see at a department store, used to try on hideous clothes. Ethan, Quinn's voice had gone low, take a look at this. Strewn around the mannequin's stenciled toes was a handful of shattered glass. The carpet seemed to be damp. Ethan bent down and sniffed, a sweet aroma teasing his nose. Champagne. Then he saw it. The vivid red welt plastered on the right cheek. He traced his finger down the smooth plastic. It wasn't painted on. In fact, it seemed to have a rather familiar shape one that cut a little too close to the bone. He glanced at the arm that extended outwards. It was pointing dead ahead at the mirror, frozen in an eternal gesture. He tried to adjust the arm, but it wouldn't budge. Quinn, he said, can you try and move it? Quinn attempted to push back the arm, twist the head, or even readjust the fingers. Nothing. It was completely rigid. Why was it pointing at the mirror? Ethan slipped across the carpet, traced his hand around the mirror's polished frame. Then his fingers felt a slight niche in the side. He pried it open with a fingernail, allowing the whole thing to swing back on oiled hinges. It was a gaping mouth of darkness. Only faint tendrils of light from the chandelier illuminated the top of a stairwell leading down to the inky abyss. He looked at Quinn, then once more at the mannequin, the hand of plastic still outstretched, pointing at where the mirror had been. Did the doll lead them to it? Ethan sniffed, the rank stench filling his nostrils. 
Quinn came over, stood next to him. You know, I'm not sure I want to do this. Good, Ethan said. Neither do I. He had almost expected the wooden stairs to groan under his weight, but it seemed to be newly installed. Ethan wondered if this entire basement had been freshly crafted as well. There was no sign of rust or decay, nothing to indicate that this place was old. Or was it just frequently used? They reached the bottom, the looming darkness trying to suffocate them. Ethan's foot knocked against something with a distinct tap. Quinn flashed her torch, the golden beam coming to rest on whatever Ethan had disturbed. It was another mannequin. The arms and legs were tangled, tortured into bizarre positions, and there seemed to be several blotchy bruises on the plastic, various shades of hideous yellow and purple. What is this? Ethan whispered, his voice betraying the fear sprouting in the pit of his stomach. His fingers twitched. God, he needed a smoke right now. Quinn's torchlight danced along the walls, picking out another mannequin posing in the gloom. This one had dark hair and eyes to match. A red substance seemed to have dribbled down from the neck and dried over, leaving behind red streaks. Ethan sniffed, the all-too-familiar stench clogging his nose. The beam swung around. Ethan's eyes followed it as it uncovered more and more of these plastic statues. Some of them were twisted in uncanny angles, sprawled on the floor with missing limbs. Others had faint trickles of blood oozing from their lips, from their throat, all dried and crusty on the flaking plastic. And almost all had some sort of bruising or damage, not unlike the aftermaths of a light battering. Ethan stepped back, his back rubbing against the wall with a rattle. He spun around and Quinn's beam followed. Securely tethered to the wall by thick chains were manacles. And fastened inside those manacles dangled the plastic arms of the mannequins. A lake of dark crimson had congealed on the ground below it. The light beam quivered. Oh God, Quinn was saying. Oh God, oh God. Ethan tried to swallow, but his throat was dry. He pressed a hand against the wall to steady himself. His vision was swaying, the world threatening to close in on him. Sweat pooled under his arms, snaked down his back. That statue upstairs, had it known? The hand had pointed to the hidden door, as if directing people down here on purpose. His eyes came to rest on one of the mannequins against the wall. The mass-manufactured eyes stared past him, unflinching and dead. Quinn, he muttered. The woman who came in here. What did the neighbour say she looked like? Quinn whipped out her pad, flicking through her notes with a stylus. She was doing a remarkable job, considering. Blonde, cropped hair, lithe figure. She looked up at him. You don't think that... Something moved. The eyes remained the same, but there was something brimming over the bottom rim of the eyelids. They rolled over and slid slowly down the cheek leaving twin streaks of crimson. Ethan felt sleet pump into his veins, his body rooted firmly to the spot. Quinn was breathing hard, chest rising and falling. What? Wait! Ethan stood in front of another mannequin, studying the hideous artwork of bruises on the skin. With a voice that trembled, he asked, 
What did he do to you? The words had barely passed his lips before two scarlet drops appeared in the eyes, sailing down the plastic skin and falling to the floor in a pat, pat, pat. Help me, the eyes seemed to say. Help me. Ethan's heart lurched. How many souls were down here, trapped in this nightmare? Were they even alive anymore? Or were they eternally sentenced to a shell of plastic and fiberglass, staring with dead eyes? Ethan swallowed sour saliva. Call the station. Get everyone down here. He started back up the stairs. And seal the perimeter. No one gets in or out. It didn't take long before the house was wound in thick yellow tape. Several dozen people bustled about, documenting the finds in the basement. Ethan just sat on the patio, a drooping eucalyptus branch tickling the back of his neck. The first fingers of dawn had started to claw their way across the sky. A crowd had gathered out the front despite the early hour, curious middle-aged couples and kids who had dragged Mummy and Daddy to see the shiny police cars and the detectives, and maybe even a body. People just couldn't resist watching the suffering of others. Heavy footfalls behind him. That had to be Nicholson, the chief inspector. He plonked down next to Ethan, caressing the salt and pepper stubble forming along his chin. You did well in there, son, he was trying to maintain a firm voice. He wasn't doing a good job of it. Those plastic bodies, those... How many, said Ethan, staring up at the grey heavens. Thirty, maybe more. Ethan felt his jaw harden. The neighbour had called many, many times. They could have stopped this. They should have. What about the blood? Ethan faced his superior. Does it match anyone in the missing database? Nicholson coughed and looked away. But Ethan had his answer. Go home, son. Have a rest. You've earned it. Ethan got to his feet brushing down the creases in his jacket. He was about to walk away when Nicholson called him back, all charm and grins. Owen, son, not a word to the press. I mean it. Ethan nodded, his jaw tightening. You have a good day, sir. Martha's car was still parked out the front when Ethan pulled up to his apartment block, squinting in the harsh sun. Hopefully she'd talk with him. He would listen if she cursed at him, shouted at him, refused to forgive him. That was okay, as long as she was willing to talk. He'd make this right, whatever it took. He advanced up the corkscrew staircase, flinging open the door. He set the keys down on the granite bench, looking around for her. He took a quick peek inside the bedroom. Empty. So was the kitchen, the bathroom, the lounge room. No one was home. Maybe she decided to walk to work today. He thought of giving her a ring, but decided against it. She'd speak to him in her own time, and he would listen. He'd be a better man, take it back to when they'd first married, before all this. He peeled his clothes off, bundled them in the washing machine before shutting the bedroom door and climbing into bed. He rested his head on a pillow and was about to shut his eyes when he saw it. The mannequin stood still in the corner, 
familiar auburn hair sprouting from the scalp. A hand-shaped bruise decorated the right cheek, swelled like overripe fruit. Ethan watched as a single red tear blossomed in the eyes and crawled down her face. That was Jeremy Saul's House of Dolls, as read by Dan Raybarts. Dan Raybarts is an award-winning short fiction author, editor, and podcast narrator, recipient of New Zealand's Sir Julius Vogel Award for Best New Talent in 2014. His science fiction, dark fantasy, and horror short stories have been published in numerous venues around the world, including Beneath Ceaseless Skies, Starship Sofa, and The Mammoth Book of Diesel Punk. His vocal talents have been heard on such podcasts as Starship Sofa, Tales to Terrify, Plan B, and Beneath Ceaseless Skies. Together with Lee Murray, he co-edited the anthology Baby Teeth, Bite-Sized Tales of Terror, winner of the 2014 Sir Julius Vogel for Best Collected Work and the 2014 Australian Shadows Award for Best Edited Work. And At the Edge in 2016, a collection of Antipodian dark fiction. In 2017, Hounds of the Underworld, a book one of the crime-slash-horror series, The Path of Ra, co-written with Lee Murray, will be released by Raw Dog Screaming Press. Find out more at dan.raybarts.com. Dan, thank you again. That'll be our show for the evening, children of the night. Visit our Patreon page in the links below, and don't forget to like us on iTunes. Our show is produced by our editor Scott Silk and associate editor Seth Williams and Drew Sebastini, and theme music by Diane Severson. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 